The Video Insiders is the show that makes sense of all that is happening in the world of online video, as seen through the eyes of a second-generation Kodak nerd and a marketing guy who knows what iframes and macro blocks are. And here are your hosts, Mark Donegan and Dror Gill. All right, well, welcome back to the Video Insiders, and I am here with my very esteemed co-host, Dror Gill. Dror, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Mark. Thank you very much. And how are you? I am doing very well. Uh, We have today um, another uh, psychology art major who is uh, dealing with video. We we love those. This seems to be a common common theme. We know someone else who's... um, you know, who has a very similar background and is involved in video encoding. So that's, that's right. And, uh, I think because video, you know, is, is a combination of art and science. I think that is is. great. Uh, so today we are hosting uh, Chris Kennedy. He's a video engineer at Elation Crunchyroll. And that's uh, obviously the world's destination for anime. Chris gave a fascinating talk at the Demuxed uh, conference uh, this year on the human visual system. And since we talk here a lot about uh, human perception and visual quality and compression, uh, you know, we saw this uh, presentation and, and we thought that Chris would be uh, the perfect guest for the Video Insiders podcast. So uh, welcome, Chris, to the Video Insiders. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's great to have you on, Chris. I, you know, reached out to you because I saw that it was even before your, you actually gave your talk and I saw the description and, and I said, you know, um, I haven't heard his talk yet, but I love the title and I think we need to have Chris on the show. (laughs) So you'll recall, I sent you a LinkedIn message and you were kind enough to respond. And, uh, we, we finally were able to get our schedules in sync. So welcome. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about, uh, about yourself, about your background. Yeah, I originally, in the late 90s, I was kind of running my own ISP at home, in a way, web server and stuff. And I got into, I I started working at an ISP, and that's how I actually got into general computers, actually. And that led into getting a job at a broadcast place, a PBS station as a broadcast engineer, which, and I started building these systems for like hardware capture of all the different formats, and then stream live streaming it some, um, VOD capturing it and storing it for clipping for selling to companies. And that just, you know, like all video, I've did PAL and um, teletext and closed captioning capture and replaying and also on the live stream and VOD. From that world, I kind of, I, I finally in 2014 uh, moved on to Crunchyroll, which was a whole different, you know, atmosphere with anime and, you know, before it was news clipping. And I'd used um, perceptual hashes for like, um, commercial detection and recognition and a lot of other kind of fingerprinting of video frames. So Crunchyroll, we had, you know, anime, um, we were figuring out quality of the anime. Um, and, um, you know, we kind of got into some of perceptual hash using for compression and in general, just, you know, really focusing more on, um, the art, the video, the quality, um, because, you know, on clipping services, that wasn't as important. So, that's yeah. kind of like how I got to where I'm at. <laughs> yeah, it's really it's really amazing. So you you started as an internet ISP, and from there you moved on uh, to work uh, in broadcast, um, and then you started building uh, your own broadcast uh, uh, equipment, uh, and uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, and 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 building stuff that was used. And obviously, I, I assume you you witnessed this uh, transition in the industry from analog to to digital to IP. 
yes. and, and went through this all and now uh, into uh, digital video uh, encoding for for streaming for for VOD right that that's what um, uh, crunchyroll does uh, mostly VOD right yes yeah so for those listeners that actually didn't get to catch your talk um, either live or you know on the video replay at demux we are you primarily going to focus on something that you know maybe a little bit geeky but very very important for anybody who's practicing video encoding and I just want to read the title at least of your demux slide to sort of frame our whole discussion the talk that you gave was titled the magic of human visual system perception I love the word magic um, <laughs> and um, and then the subtitle is um, or was how video exploits the HVS of course human visual system using psychological malfunctions to achieve the quality of reality so boy I I, I can tell your you, <laughs> wow. your, your, your psychology training uh, Chris is coming out there in the title. <laughs> Right, right. Yes. <laughs> no, it's yeah. awesome. It's, it's, it's really great because, you know, this is um, such important stuff to be talking about. I, I, I think video is hard, you know, Dror and I, you know, routinely yeah. um, both on the podcast and, and in private echo that that's a very common uh, sentiment. And some days it's really easy to kind of get hung up on You know maybe the numbers or the math or you know some of the some of the more more technical elements which are all important to encoding video um, but at the end of the day our machines are not watching video yet <laughs> it's still humans with eyeballs <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. well maybe they are watching it to analyze it but they're not enjoying yeah, they're not the enjoying You know, maybe you can tell us, Chris, what exploitations of HVS are incurring, you know, in the video encoding function. Let's let's start there. The main one, of course, was the frame to frame motion, which is the biggest. You know, it's just like amazing that we're seeing what we're seeing when we know it's frames individually and in pictures that are creating the motion. Right. And, and this started, I think, in the early days of cinema. Right. When this exploitation of uh, uh, moving pictures yeah. into uh, a movie. Uh, actually right. uh, started I think at 16 frames per second or something as, as low as that yeah yeah and the, and the frame rates are interesting to see and I've, I've, I've heard you know you look at studies they're saying maybe 60s the max but then you see other things they're saying even 120 you can gain so even that's not fully understood <laughs> is how we even react to the different frame rates completely I, I read today that Thomas Edison decided that the optimal frame rate for a smooth video for smooth uh, films actually or movies at the time was 46 frames per second and the, the reason that early silent uh, movies used 16 frames per second was that uh, economical reason they just uh, could not build something that was cheap enough to manufacture and could capture such, such a high frame so rate. even then they had bandwidth and storage issues yeah <laughs> imagine that <laughs> <laughs> and then they would film it at like 16 uh, 18 frames per second and then they would play it back at, at 20 to 24 and th and that's why those silent movies you know people are always in a hurry <laughs> because the playback rate is is actually higher than 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 the capture rate yeah and also like luminance over chroma how 420 in general videos you know we, we see the luminance more that that's another thing exploit aspect of video that's being used and that's related to something uh, in our brains right that we have more rods than cards I think in region of interest is interesting I think how um, the focus area that we're watching which 
may be utilized, may not be in encoding as much. I think I think encoders will like say, oh, this this you know this motion here, it's not as important as a still frame potentially at times, but you know that has different ways that they use PSNR in the encoder level. I see. When we refer to the video quality, to the the perceptual quality, uh, we always say that it is uh, subjective. And um, I actually looked up the definition of subjective in the dictionary, and it says, subjective is something that is based on personal feeling, taste, or opinion. So, so what actually happens when you do human visual testing, and I think in your presentation, you show a slide about the, the BT500 uh, DSIS, the double stimulus uh, impairment scale, where uh, people are asked to rank uh, the quality of uh, a video or the quality of the impairments they're seeing between a source and a degraded video on a scale of one to five from imperceptible, almost imperceptible, uh, perceptible, but not annoying, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, so basically people are ranking this and, uh, and, and what we get at the end, if we have enough people ranking enough uh, clips, we, we get a good estimation of subjective quality by, by an average. So it's not actually a, a single human uh, subjective quality, but it is the average of the subjective opinion of all humans. With subjective testing, we're all actually testing uh, the average uh, perceptual quality. You show the graphs of um, uh, PSNR and, and VMAF and SSIM, how they change with bitrate. Um, so I, I was wondering, what are your thoughts around uh, uh, the ability of those uh, objective metrics, those numerical formulas, to approximate this uh, uh, perceptual quality. Right. Yeah, it looks like, to me, there's many holes in, in the objectivity of those metrics. When you really compare it to subjective, like, there's, there's stuff that you can trick, and you can have, you can trick it and make PSNR, you know, great for something that doesn't look subjectively great to most people. And then you've got different people's like feelings and opinions will can drastically change. I've seen it where the the actual like source, since it isn't great, will alter how they judge the encoding and tests subjectively, and then they will like actually judge. You know, they'll judge the master. The source is worse than the encoding at times, <laughs> which wow. which will get you know, some some and, and also in our testing so far, we haven't gotten that large. Um, and in just smaller sets of people seem like varying, you know, like this person obviously was not like this person mm. on their judgment. Um, so when you average that together subjectively, it's, I don't know how useful it's going to be really, or how, you know, bigger studies that it'd be interesting to look at how that stuff really smooths over across people, you know, the environment influences it in, in objective metrics. I've seen things in anime, like where it will say it's fine. But you know it's not fine when you really look at it. And some things with like when like interlacing burn in, that shows some strange objective um, scoring. I've noticed between newer codecs, like with AV1, VP9, the differences when you do objective metrics don't seem as much as the actual visual subjective um, viewing of the content. The objective metrics are not scoring the codecs the same way. So, and, and you see that objective metrics for H264 are more accurate than when you apply the same metrics to uh, VP9 or AV1? I believe so. I, what I've seen is a lot of them, and VP9 and AV1 so far, blurring, where and like little details that are missing mm -hmm. um, in the picture. 
And an H.264, that doesn't seem to happen. Um, I haven't looked at H.265 as much, but um, from what I've heard, and I'm guessing it's, it's probably more accurate, like H.264 at times. So this is a phenomenon that you know, a lot of people that that we're working with and talking with, and even some of our recent podcast interviews are reporting is exactly what you reported. You know, the fact that you can you can sometimes see lower objective results, and yet the visual quality may be effectively perceptually identical. Or, you know, in other words, it's you know you're not seeing a corresponding change, right? shift. And then conversely, <laughs> the opposite can happen, you know, where you're like, Hey, you know, objectively the scores are, 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 are very good. There's high correlation. And yet you can clearly see that there's a difference between the two. And it just shows how complicated it is, you know, to reduce visual perception, you know, and visual quality to a number. Um, your service is really, I think, exclusively anime, right? Do you have any video, um, um, uh, content that is you know not sort of hand-drawn and animated or is it 100 percent? we actually do we we have some uh, drama uh, japanese drama and then traditionally on crunchyroll and then on verve we've that's where we've got we've got some video game content we've got some um like podcast type or or, i mean video cast type content of people seeing talking about video games mostly or and so we had some horror on there and stuff too, actually, but not, not nearly as much as of course our anime. It's mostly hand-drawn, you know, two, two dimensional or not, not even really 3d animation. I mean, anime is a very um, interesting genre. You talk about context and expectation and, and you reference those two words, you know, somewhat regularly. And I thought, huh, that's interesting because and there's a slide and, and by the way for the listeners um we will link in the show note i think it's slide 8 that shows this progression you know sort of this almost evolution of 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 how we evolve our perception over time and i think it's it's really uh an important point that you're making and that is and it's something that you know i've been really sort of passionate about and you know, there's been the argument for the longest time that there's sort of like the second screen, you know, that the mobile device is the second screen. And I'm so happy that the industry has really even dropped that reference because it's, it's, it's all the first screen. <laughs> you know? and, and, and what I'm happy about is that as mobile devices, you know, the technology, I mean, now you have OLEDs and now you've got, you know, even 4k resolution and, and, you know, and yes, we can get all hung up over the argument of, you know, whether you can really see the resolution on a six inch screen when you're in, you know, all that kind of stuff. But the point is, and the point I, I think you're making is that the consumer is now understanding that they there is a quality difference and that that amazing mobile device that may only be a six inch screen, but it's an OLED and it's, you know, if not 4k, it's, uh, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's two and a half K. Um, and, and, and the, the expectation is rising of, of the consumer, right? In other words, they're being trained that, that, that better quality is available. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And I think uh, in the early days of Crunchyroll, they were, they were always above most services, um, so they were always carrying a higher average bit rate. Um, and I think with the bigger um, TV viewing, these bigger um, big TVs uh, a couple of years ago really is what seemed to push it up, the quality expectations um, that we saw. And, 
and like with context, it's kind of like I'm looking at like, you know, why are you watching this? What, how did you start watching it? Is it your choice to watch? What kind of mm-hmm. space are you in? Uh, you know, where are you watching it at? Um, what kind of content like sports, news, drama, cartoons, and anime viewing screen? You know, previously, what were you watching it on? Like if, if you were watching your anime, an older style, you know, back in the five years ago for, and just suddenly switched to nowadays watching it, you know, that, that would be a big, you know, change for somebody but then walking slowly through the years to get there you know people don't seem to notice as much you've just kind of now you're used to this quality but i think we yeah we're we're speeding up so um now people are becoming more and more aware of like i really want to be 4k um so yeah we're probably improving everybody's perception and making them all more golden eye like (laughs) which is maybe good for us maybe yeah (laughs) But your know, expectation of news versus your favorite TV show um, and have you, yeah, what have you watched before? That kind of stuff. The thing about expectations is that they can only increase, right? You can never lower your expectation <laughs> once yes. you get used to something. <laughs> That's a really good point. You get spoiled. Yeah, get exactly. Spoiled. Exactly. Exactly. You know, we can talk about this and it's it's sort of academic and sort of, you know, it's interesting, right? But one of the things that we strive to do here is to bring a practical element, you know, so now what do you do with this? Yeah. <laughs> so maybe you can share, you know, with the listeners, you know, how you're you're taking these two ideas of of understanding that your user has both con- context and expectation. And can you give an example of how that translates into, you know, what you're doing with video encoding or how you're building your service or how you're delivering the content or do you have any examples you can share? Well, I think with collecting data, user info about past viewing behavior and all the details, because using data to predict um, possibly what a viewer's context is, is, you know, one way to do it that we have right now. Um, also combining that with uh, VMAF seems amazing, but it's also not like the tuning of it has been toward net, toward Netflix. Well, if that was able to be tuned towards, um, each services situation, um, you know, audience context, that, that, that seems really powerful. I feel like VMAF's kind of sitting there like with its own holes because it hasn't been modeled to every situation that people use it on currently. Really but just did you try situation. to model it for, for anime? That's what we're looking at. And it also, you know, reading about it, it's like, wow, you have to, you know, the, the user testing and stuff seems pretty daunting to set up a VMath model. But we're, we're definitely, that's one of our goals for the next year to start looking at. We're looking at ways to loop in the users, like having them give us feedback in a way that we could start using that as like a tuning of VMath. I want to go back to a point you mentioned earlier about uh, encoding anime content. And, you know, we, we've, in, in our own uh, uh, development of uh, uh, encoding and content adaptive encoding, and uh, especially when reducing bitrate and, and trying to find optimal parameters, we, we really see that every type of content even at the same uh, resolution, and if you want to target the same quality, each piece of content requires a different bitrate uh, to encode. And anime content, on on one hand, it is uh, uh, it is pretty uh, simple because you know it, it is hand drawn and you have uh, smooth uh, surfaces, and in in some of the scenes, not a lot of motion uh, uh, going on. But then you find out that 
in particular situations, you really need to pay attention uh, to the encoding because especially when you have a completely static scene and only one thing is moving, for example, somebody is blinking his eyes and that's all the motion you get in that scene, this isolated uh, motion you know, has to be uh, uh, treated in a way that, you know, in, enough bits are allocated uh, to it uh, and uh, and it doesn't get uh, uh, distorted because, you know, the encoder can be confused by all of those smooth surfaces and, you know, uh, come to the conclusion that uh, nothing is happening in this scene and all the uh, motion can be just skipped. So I, I was wondering um, if you have any specific insights that you have learned uh, while uh, uh, focusing your, your encoding efforts specifically on anime content? One thing we've seen is like the encoders are not tuned for it. Um, X264 sort of was. Talking to some encoder developers, uh, um, Dmuxed them, they were like, well, back then we, we didn't have jobs as much. <laughs> it's like now we actually are <laughs> doing other things in our lives. So yeah, we don't have that kind but of Now they anymore. have a life. So <laughs> they don't have time to uh, optimize the open source uh, as, as much as they used to. Uh, yeah. But are you using some of those tools, uh, Flag, which are specifically tuned for animated content? Um, yeah, next two six four. Of course, we're we're using specific tunings. But yeah, and, and like in VP nine, it's really not there. Uh, maybe one. It looks like it's going to be, and it's better than VP nine already slightly, but not. It's still not. You know, I, I talked to some AV one developers at Dmuxed and. It's like, yeah, we need to work on this. <laughs> you know, they they see it too. Um, so, Chris, your your primary codec is uh, is H two six four followed by VP nine. Uh, H two six four. Currently, we're looking okay. at VP nine. So you're not um, deployed yet at the moment. Yeah, it's libvpx, and we're like on the edge of like this. We think we have a setting that'll work. It's not the greatest, you know, savings as we had expected. Um, but also, maybe one. It's like right now. My judgment of AV1 is I can get the same quality as VP9 with AV1, you know, it's and probably around the same bit rate. It's not much of a gain I'm seeing yet, at least with anime. Yeah, that's interesting. And then, of course, you know, you have the huge advantage with VP9 that you actually have a playback ecosystem, you know, AV1, you, you don't. I mean, right. yes, you have the browser, but that's it. <laughs> so, and even then, yeah. that's pretty yeah. limited is not everybody is running. Um, you know, what, what do you do for Safari users? Right. Right. Yeah. I think, um, you know, what's interesting about HEVC and it's amazing, you know, a lot of the industry is, is still not aware that, uh, for streaming or for actually what, what technically is called digital delivery of content. So that's streaming, um, there's zero, um, uh, royalty cost. There's, there's absolutely no royalty cost. There is one patent pool that is sort of lingering out there. They don't, you know, the, the main issue is they, you know, they haven't published a price schedule and, you know, you kind of have to go talk to them privately. And so that maybe gets some people a little bit, still a, a, a slightly skittish, but we're surprised and I guess not surprised because there's so many developments all the time, you know, in the codex space. So it's hard to keep track of all of them. But yeah, a lot of people just aren't aware that some of the initially very onerous um, licensing um, requirements are gone, completely gone. So there's no cost there. That's the first thing. The second thing is, is that, you know, now that you've got 
um, all these major services, you know, from Disney Plus to, of course, Netflix for years has been adopting HEVC. There's a lot of major people who, even though still maybe it's it's limited to 4K or UHD or kind of their their higher quality profiles, you know, they're delivering content in HEVC. Jan Ozer just published yesterday on streamingmedia.com a really excellent article about the growth of HEVC. And, you know, when you read that, it's like, wow, it's really taking off. So talk about, you know, your your encoding pipeline, you know, how it's built, what technologies are you using? Did you build your own player? Are you leveraging, you know, third-party players? You know, maybe, maybe walk. I know the listeners would be very curious. Yeah, yeah. One thing I'll start with is actually our player currently. Um, there was a real good SF video meetup talk by um, Hampton, who's our um, video player developer right now, lead one. And he's basically talked about the design and details. And yeah, we're, we're really something that in the future we're hoping to open source and share. So that part, you know, is really exciting. And our, our backend encoding, um, we're right now working on actually next year, we're going to work on replacing it with a, we're, we're right now working on a node model where we have nodes that do encoding and a kind of a system that like keeps track of that. And we're looking at moving towards more of a, a cluster Docker type build where it's just like big one solid, you know, thing that you send to the encoder, not individual nodes. Um, kind of like that models what we're looking at. We're, we were doing parallel um, segmented encoding up to about a year ago or so, but we kind of backed off on that for now. And we're, we're looking at this system to do that a little better because the node model, we had some um, require, you know, system um, resource requirements um, happening with that. So you're running this on public cloud, or is this your own infrastructure? Yes, um, AWS um, cloud. We we used to be in a data center, and we had that all running, and we moved it to the cloud, and that's why now we're going to move to more of a cloud-native idea and use some of the newer um, methods for you know clustering uh, that, that aren't ha- having the old, like you keep track of each individual computer as a node. And the encoding itself is all open source, FFmpeg X264? Yes, yep. And um, originally we, we had used uh, PHash some for some, um, you know, kind of making dynamic um, compression decisions. But um, we've kind of backed off on that and went back to two-pass, actually, because we've determined that it's too risky. <laughs> and um it's really anything out there probably is going to be risky on anime right now at trying to lower bit rate too um, dramatically. Um, and, and this is somewhat we're, we're hoping the community and the encoders um, can work together. That's, that's what when we're open source, we open sourced our like researching and also our segmented encoding technologies in that open source repository and just in general, the ideas that we have with PHash. Now, are you sharing any infrastructure with, you know, like Warner Media or AT and T? At the current time, we're no. we're separate. I think it's it's very interesting uh, uh, to hear about all this uh, open source that you're providing on the infrastructure side and and possibly also on the player side. Maybe uh, you can provide us with some links. We'll put in the show notes on where we can uh, download uh, that uh, open source. I think it would be very interesting for our listeners. Yes, yes. And it, it's on um, GitHub, um, Crunchyroll slash objective underscore perceptual underscore analysis. So can can you tell us a little bit more about this um, perceptual hash that, that you mentioned? You said you were yeah. you were trying it and then you, you backed off, but it's interesting to hear about uh, this experiment, what, what you were trying to do and how. Yeah, yeah. The It seems like you know, how P hash is the, the one we're 
looking at the main p hash is a dct that you're taking the frequencies a section of the frequencies and you're fingerprinting them so in theory it's like grabbing the perceptual details um and so you can match images really precisely with this and um so looking at it both from the reference from master and encoder encoded frames and then also looking at is like previous and current frame you could judge like you know a metric of is it really the exact same image as it was in the master and also did this image perceptually change a lot from the last image um in detail which in previous to current image there's something you know more there to research maybe even altering the way the ph works to be more for compression but i don't think it's it, it's interesting it's something to explore <laughs> that, that we, we you can kind of ride on it and get different bit rates for different content and it does mostly match but there's a something they're missing like some content will suddenly look really bad like it's got a high score between frames but um you know frame rate could influence that but seeing other things that's might be some of the holes uh, at times of of um the other metrics where you see that this is perceptually inaccurate but it, the metrics don't notice it uh, we see it sometimes follow psnr sometimes follow ssim <laughs> and sometimes you know go follow vmaf so uh, it's like um there's something there to, to, to shake out. Yeah, I understand. So, so you actually used it for different applications uh, in the past, and now uh, you were trying to apply it to uh, content adaptive encoding, helping you to, uh, to lower the bitrate if possible. You said something a few minutes ago that I, I found interesting, and I, I want to come back to speaking of this, you know, content adaptive approach. Um, the industry is, you know, all a buzz. Uh, it seems that you know every vendor has their content adaptive solution, and everybody's working on developing something. And it seems like there's sort of the per title approach, you know, there's the per scene. I think we're one of the few, if not the only, that's doing a per frame. But the right. the thing I want to come back to is your comment that you found that from, I think, I think you said from scene to scene, the bitrate requirements can be quite dramatic. And that seems problematic when, you know, even though I assume you're encoding in VBR, but still you need some sort of a of a, you know, your bit rate needs to stay within a certain range, you know, it can't vary, vary too wildly. Yes. Yeah. So, um, how are you, you know, how, how are you dealing with that? Um, other than, you know, maybe having to accept some compromise on quality. That's what I've seen with it is that, yeah, it would go too low and it might be justified for going too low, but both in encoding and in streaming that causes problems <laughs> and that that's what, that, so it seems like um, it would be better to have more of like almost a two-pass averaging of it out and figuring out things from a bigger picture than just going along and saying, oh, well, you could go down to this bit rate with this scene. But to transition from the last scene, to stream that segments clean <laughs> and efficiently, um, that's going to be a harsh transition. But anime is doing those harsh transitions. So it's, to, it's, it's like you could lead the... Um, the algorithm astray easily with anime. Right. That's why a temporal component is, is very important when you have a quality measure. Right, right. And that's the part that it hasn't I've looked at or, you know, I could see neat. it's needed to need it. In. Yeah. And, and th this is actually, you know, qu quantifying changes that you don't really see when you look uh, on a on a frame by frame basis, when you treat its frame as an image. 
But then when you look at difference between the previous and the current frame in the original uh, uh, video and the compressed one, that's when you, you start seeing things like temporal flow, uh, which you need to preserve in order to have a smooth um, uh, motion. So again, if you look frame by frame, everything looks okay. But then you look at the video, and, and if you didn't take care of preserving the temporal flow, then things kind of jump around uh, not very um, uh, smoothly, and that's easily uh, noticeable. And that's why we put uh, uh, this uh, temporal component. We started developing the quality measure for images, and uh, one of the things we added when we migrated this technology to video is this uh, temporal component that preserves your temporal flow and uh, prevents these artifacts from happening. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Sounds good. <laughs> and so what does your ABR ladder look like if your top profile is 8 megabits? You know, do you have a, a, a couple levels at 1080p or do you just go 1080p down to 720p, 480 and so on and so forth? We're currently 1080 to 720, um, but that's one thing um, I've been looking at pushing for is we need an in-between 1080p and 720p, although it's tricky because you when we record anything between the two, it, it, it's going to noticeably look bad on certain uh, anime content. And then you go to 480p. Do you do you go lower than 480p? or We, we do 360p and 240p, actually. <laughs> well, this has uh, been, you know, really fascinating discussion, Chris. And uh, I want to... Thank you for coming on. You're welcome. It's been wonderful. Um, I'm I'm amazed. <laughs> I think we, we learned a lot about uh, compressing animation and specifically anime content and uh, delivering it. And we learned a lot about user expectations and context um, and, and quality measures that sometimes work and sometimes uh, don't, and you need to perfect them. So, uh, thanks a lot, Chris, uh, really for a fascinating uh, episode of the Video Insiders. You're welcome. Thank yeah, you. Thanks for coming on, Chris. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Video Insiders Podcast, a production of Beamer Limited. To begin using Beamer's Codex today, go to beamer.com forward slash free to receive up to 100 hours of no-cost HEVC and H264 transcoding every month.